Hey everyone, this is Connor. Before we get started, I just want to encourage you to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. If you become a patron, you'll get access to multiple exclusive episodes every month. And you can also join our patrons-only Discord chat, where Pete and I talk informally with the Podside Picnic community. So if you like the show, go ahead and check us out at patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. Thanks. Our blasters are useless against him. Hey, let's make the baby do the magic hand thing. Come on, baby. Do the magic hand thing. I'm out of ideas. I'm not. Everyone, welcome back to Podside Picnic. I am here with the uh, I'm gonna mispronounce this, but the grief carga to my Mandalorian, <laughs> to my Janar. I can't even pronounce his, his what his name is supposed to be. We'll just call the Mandalorian Mando. Uh, Pete, I'm back here with Pete, <laughs> and you can tell what we're talking about, which is. Disney Plus's The Mandalorian. Um, you know, if you're not familiar with the show, uh, and I know a lot of you probably don't have Disney Plus, and I'm not sure if this is enough of an enticement to get it, but uh, it's a show about a bounty hunter who was part of a religious warrior sect called The Mandalorians, um, and he is just trying to survive in the, the wreckage of the Empire. I guess we're after Return of the Jedi here. And then he encounters Baby Yoda, and it becomes a lone wolf and cub type story. And we're going to get into all of that. That's just framing it for all of you. Um, I think Pete and I both have enjoyed the first season, and there's a lot to unpack here. I want to hit Pete with a question, though. Yeah. Pete, Pete, let's get right down to brass tacks here. You said you liked the first uh, season of the show, Mm -hmm. and you expect Disney to screw it up. What do you mean by that? Well, what I think we both like about this, and actually I'm putting words in your mouth. I'm not going to do that. What I like about this is that it is it is the 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 classic wandering hero. It's the cowboy comes into town. It's the Ronin story. And those do poorly over 12 seasons. I mean, the whole idea is that th- this sort of story is uh it's a short story. It's minimalistic. Um, he goes, he confronts the bad, he pays the price, and he moves on, and that's the end. If you end up having it go season after season, what you end up with is like Master of Kung Fu, where it's it's a it's a permanent monster of the week. And I think that would severely weaken the story. Okay, that is interesting, and, and there's a lot to unpack there. Some of I, I agree with some of what you said, and I, I'm I think I generally agree with you. I do think that um what we're going to get right down to with this show is, is much like Witcher, which we did an episode on last week. Um, this is episodic. It's often monster enemy of the week. And it's very, very similar uh, to Witcher in other ways. Namely, they're both lone wolf and cub stories. And um, this more explicitly than Witcher, like Witcher has a lot going on. It's kind of a, a sprawling, chaotic show. 
that refuses to provide exposition and backstory that we could honestly use if we haven't, like, if you're not <laughs> deeply involved in Witcher lore. Whereas this is Star Wars, right? Like, this is after the collapse of, of the Empire, the death of Vader and Palpatine. So, like, we're pretty much all familiar with that. This is, and it is the most, Mandalorian is, like, the most stripped-down basic TV show I may have ever seen. Like, it harkens, it harkens back to the 50s, basically. Like, the, the biggest, the best analog for this is, honestly, 50s cowboy shows. Um, where you just have like the most direct, unexpressive script you can possibly have, and the characters are like just rock solidly in their two dimensions, and you just roll with it. And like Pete said, it's a it's a Ronin slash Western story, lone gunslinger, lone samurai. Um, but I think that you've got you hit the nail right in the head. The problem here is how do you manage stakes for all the different characters and if you're Disney and you own the right to Star Wars, you can definitely do one season of like, we're just going to be as disciplined as we can. We're going to strip this down and replicate the magic of like shows that were on the fifth in the fifties and sixties, but with, you know, Star Wars aesthetics and everything uh, and baby Yoda. But then the question becomes, since they are sort of re-encountering the empire and reiterating the, the previous struggles of the Sith and the Jedi and the empire and the rebels, all these epic, you know, fate of the universe struggles that have come before are rearing their heads as we ramp up the stakes of the story. How then do you manage this kind of episodic uh, lone wolf and cub story? How do you keep ramping up those bigger stakes and, and, and manage things? And I think Pete, you're totally right. I don't really trust Disney to do it. I'm glad we got one really, I'm glad we got one really good season though, at least. Yeah, I, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and like the places where the cracks shown were also very interesting. I mean, we'll talk about that later, but that whole like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are Imperial Guardsmen bit was very funny. And I liked it a lot, even though it probably shouldn't have been there. Yeah, there's a lot of nice little touches. And I mean, when I say this is the most basic stripped down show possible, like you said, there are some nice little flourishes. So I guess, I guess you could, you could possibly like break this down even farther, but like, Gosh, the script, you feel like, especially in the early episodes, there's like 14 lines of dialogue. Like, I feel like it's not, yeah. this is not literally the case, but you feel like the screen, the, the teleplay for these episodes could fit on like one page. Cause it's just like, hey, Mando, you want a job? Yeah, I want a job. Go to the job. <laughs> you know, and then it's like, bam, 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 bam. Uh oh, there's some, yeah. <laughs> it feels like a role playing game. I love it. Yeah. Okay. That's a great point. Um, that applies to both Witcher and Mandalorian. Both Witcher and Mandalorian are very explicit. Mandalorian even more so. They're very explicit about building in what we recognize now as video game um, functionality into their, you know, more static uh, storytelling, non-interactive at least. By which I mean in Mandalorian, a tremendous amount is made of at different milestones. He goes and upgrades his gear. And that's yeah. a big part of his character development. And that is just, you know, I mean... At this point, in, in 2019, 2020, there's no question whatsoever that if you're writing that, you're thinking, how do we make this like a video game for our viewers? Yeah. Oh, that like we could do a whole episode just on that. But uh, I wanted to go back to something you were talking about before. Uh, you referred to Mandalorian and Witcher earlier as lone wolf and cub stories. And so like two's a trend. What's up with the trend? Like, why, why is this suddenly on the rise? I think you could point to a lot of different things and we could get we get very big picture here about like 
the atomization of individuals under neoliberal late capitalism, which is like, okay, true. Um, and how that like pushes us towards sort of lone operator stories. I think though, like there's actually something maybe more specific at play. that still ties into that, which is friend of the show, Eric Hain, uh, a print run podcast. Who's been on here before. Um, he tweeted something that I really liked about how these particularly slick procedurals that you see on network TV, all the CSI, CSI esque shows, um, that so much of the the fantasy, so much of the the allure of those shows is the escape into the into a fantasy of competence, of a world where when you go to your job. People have equipment that works. They have nice computers. They know what they're doing. They get results. They work as a team. All of the sort of the machinery of their tasks essentially works. And that is very, I think, very soothing to a lot of people. Or as Eric said, it's a lot it's soothing to a lot of people because so much, a little of real life is like that, right? Um, so I think it's a great point. I'm sure others have, I'm sure it's been made elsewhere, but I like the way that Eric put it. And uh I think that that definitely applies to these lone wolf and cub stories um, because in both the Witcher Geralt of Rivia or Mandalorian, um, you have characters who are hyper competent and self-sufficient in chaotic, threatening worlds. And they figured out how to make a life for themselves and how to navigate things. And then they're pulled sort of they're pulled towards the central struggles of these universes and they're inaugurated into the sort of the moral con the deep moral conflicts um, and the, you know, the pursuits of characters who have sort of, you often have purer uh, sort of moral mandates or have a sense of destiny around them, uh, whether it's baby Yoda or Siri. And I think that like the point being here that like, yes, we're, we're familiar with that gravitational pull towards the sort of epic stakes but it starts in competence, right? And so that you have characters who are extremely adept operators who can survive anything that comes at them. And no matter how threatening or confusing their world becomes, they have the ability to, to not only navigate and push through, but also to thrive and to indeed have a sort of uh, power is not quite, quite the right word, but they have power over themselves, most importantly. They have independence. They have autonomy. So it's a fantasy of competent autonomy does that make sense yeah yeah and i mean i i i was thinking it related to your your uh commentary about the lone wolf and cub why it's always mercenaries and i think i think i think that uh the people putting this stuff out have definitely plugged into the fact that uh we're all sick of a morally complex universe and so when you're dealing with the Mandalorian or when you're dealing with the Witcher, you're dealing with someone with a fairly simple code, whether it's sane or not, that is specifically doing these things for the coin. And it gets a little more complicated, but fundamentally their lives are uh, as black and white as you could hope for. And they sidestep a lot of the, uh, the moral anguish that we experience in our own lives. And man, I mean, it's it's one of the chief attractions of both shows for me. Yeah, and I think that that the mercenary slash freelancer reality uh, of both of these characters is also crucial to their appeal. Because think about it this way: they're not alienated from their own labor. 
right? There is, it's, 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 this hooks back into the idea of competency that you go into work and everything works and you get results. That is a sort of a way of at least reconciling some of your alienation from your labor. These characters, they go, they get given a job, they go do the job. It's, it's difficult, but it's very tangible and direct. They know what they've achieved and then they get their money and they're doing things that uh, not many other people besides them know how to do to take a supreme level of skill and they make enough to live the life that they want to have um, as they repeatedly assert as they're being dragged against their will generally uh, into the bigger the bigger moral struggles. That's really, really important, too, I think, to the whole the, the appeal of these fantasies. And I want to add something else also about the contradiction of the lone wolf and cub, because we've talked about the lone wolf side of the equation um, thus far. And I think we've done a really interesting job unpacking it. But where does the cub come in? Well, I think that like, and I say this as someone who's turning 30 later this year and reflecting a little bit on leaving my 20s. Um, Pete's rolling his eyes right now. And it's like, <laughs> he's like, no, I'll, just, <laughs> I, I'll just hold off and let the surprises happen, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, as I, as I reflect on that, I think that like, you know, I'm, I'm not sure if I'll ever have a family, for instance, and I'm not sure that I want to have a family or I'm suited to having one. But, but, you know, at various points in your life when you feel like you might be leaving certain things behind, you have that those thoughts like, should I try to be this kind of person? Am I this kind of person? Et cetera, et cetera. And I think that when you think about the cub in, in the case of Witcher and Mandalorian, um, it's that everyone will always constantly have fantasies of being that kind of self-sufficient, unalienated, autonomous, skilled operator right we'll all we will always revert at various moments to that fantasy but the reality is very few people really want to be that person and i say that because like you know i'm way more of a sort of self-sufficient solitary loner in multiple senses than i than most people are and because i am that i know that most of you uh you want you want to be at home with your cub uh like and that is totally fine as well but I think that like that staging that conflict of these characters being like like staging that that the the significant time in the story being the the space when the character is being pulled towards those domestic connections being pulled towards more conventional impulses, and again the flip side of it is these massive epic stakes. But I think that like dramatizing that is very it, it brings people into a very sort of the, the friction there is very interesting to a lot of people. Does that make sense, Pete? Yeah, it does absolutely. It's a. Uh, um it's it's very interesting to me that um, our our fantasy lives, particularly through TV and movies, are usually a dark reflection of what's going on in our cultural lives. And uh, I mean, it makes perfect sense. But like the the more I think about it, the more I, I think it's 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 a little embarrassing how we're constantly uh, uh, telling on ourselves here. Um, <laughs> why is it embarrassing? That's a very Pete thing to say. Why does it? Why would it be embarrassing? Well, um, I, uh, I, I, I think that one of the few, uh, the, uh, the privacy is going away and I feel like I'm very aware and sensitive to the ways in which I, uh, expose myself to who I am in ways that, that other people can read. Like my loathing of advertisements and how, uh, how, uh, yeah. Different companies use internet cookies to figure out exactly what's going on in my life and what they can market to me, like that kind of stuff. And just the idea that uh, 
that, you know, the, the, the media I consume and the things I enjoy allow people to get an idea of my, my inner thoughts and concerns, uh, it makes me uncomfortable. Okay, so to connect that to Mandalorian, you're saying that surveillance capitalism and the decline of traditional concepts of privacy, at least, uh, makes you it, it makes you feel less autonomous. It makes you, it makes you acutely feel how uh, sort of circumscribed your your identity is, and that you are not as you're not as autonomous as you'd hope to be, and therefore you want to fantasize about being autonomous. Is that it? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. And, and, you know, the irony of it, which I think was what I was touring, sort of trying to say, but didn't say very well, is that this this fantasy is not an autonomous fantasy. This is this is a a market tested group fantasy that spread out over billions of people. And that I, I don't like that aspect of this. Yeah, I mean, Witcher and Mandalorian are two of the most mass market uh, pieces of media out there right now. I mean, right, right. And so like I'm escaping with a crowd and we all are that we uh, as a, uh, that we collectively escape into these fantasies of the individuated. Right. Exactly. Exactly. It's, it's like, uh, it's like that old far side cartoon where you see a field of thousands of penguins and there's a bubble over one of them that says I am an individual. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I guess the, the, the crux of what is the fantasy here, right? Is that like much like in a video game, I mean, how often let's go back to video games for both of these. I think let's, I'm going to, I'll try to push Witcher to the side a little bit because we've discussed it before, but let's think about Mandalorian. We've discussed how Mandalorian draws on video games and like so much at key moments in the show he's upgrading his gear which is very familiar from from role-playing video games and like how often i have this happen to me all the time uh where it's like you know you have to think you're packing up for a big trip or you're just going on a visit or like you're doing whatever logistical thing you're doing like how often do you wish that your life was uh sort of literalized in your <laughs> inventory of a long sword, a set of armor, <laughs> maybe yeah. a couple pieces of bread, some potions. And you're just like, let's ride baby. I mean, we, we have that fantasy all the time, right? Yeah. Yeah. Just moving, moving things down to their bare essentials and having the things you do matter. Yeah. And that, that fantasy itself is heavily inflected by video games. And again, Mandalorian is, is I think very, very smart um, with that. So, Pete, because you're an old fogey, no, I'm sorry, that's mean, uh, because you're a perceptive and experienced fan of science fiction, you've talked in the past about how important it is to remember that Star Wars is targeted at children. Sure. Um, is Mandalorian a show for children? How does it relate to that? Um... Okay, well, I mean, without the context of the other movies, I would say that The Mandalorian is targeted at children, but it's not really doing it in the same way as the the Star Wars movies are. Like, uh, uh, one of the things that George Lucas and his successors were really into is, um, oh God, what's a good word for it? Kawaii? You know, the, the 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 spectacle of having really cute things. And there's only one really cute thing in The Mandalorian, and that's Baby Yoda. And he's not um, 
there's there's engagement with him in a much more high stakes adult way than most of the puppets in previous Star Wars films. For example, this is a child that gets forcibly punched a couple of times. Uh, that is not targeting the same audience as the Star Wars movies. Ah, uh, interesting. Wait, are you saying that? Just because Baby Yoda gets punched, that this becomes too grim dark for kids? Uh, well, I mean, I wouldn't say just because. Um, I would say that Mandalorian is more grim dark than the Star Wars movies. And I would say that it is, like, whereas the Star Wars movies may be targeting seven year olds, Mandalorian feels more like a 10 year old gig. I, like, I, having, we went back and rewatched, you know, um, some of the older Star Wars movies for Star Wars Month. Like, I I don't know if I fully agree because there's plenty of dark um there's a lot of violence including against sort of like cartoonish puppets there's just I mean there's a there's a very grim streak running through all of the Star Wars movies the prequels are probably the least grim they have that kind of like bubbly sort of pink glowing aesthetic to them in a lot of cases uh, that <laughs> the I don't fewest know what. number of planets blown up, for example. Well, yeah, I mean, there's plenty of violence, but it's just, I mean, the, the prequels are just so shabby in so many ways that it's, it's <laughs> hard to like, I don't know that I, you're, you're okay. I, I feel there's a lot to unpack here because you're doing the thing where you fasten onto a couple instances of violence. And I'm like, I'm not saying that that's wrong necessarily, but it's also like this is why why pick out these moments in the context of all of the tremendous amount of violence that defines these stories. Right. Oh, well, I mean, I just think that that Mandalorian is grittier than almost all of the Star Wars movies. Like I would take uh, Rogue One and set it to the side and say that that like it is targeting an older audience in much the same way but like uh, there's there's consistent there's consistent injury there's uh uh there there's there's death that stays on screen there are things that i think are happening here that don't happen as much in the star wars films and that's uh it's it's a question of degree like, I, I do still think that The Mandalorian is targeted on a younger audience. I just don't think it's as young. Well, so, I, I mean, this is maybe where I'm going to undermine my own point. I don't think that it's targeted at a young audience at all. I, I do think that the uh, it's in the wheelhouse of adults between, I don't know, 60 and 25, maybe younger. I mean, but the, like I, I see this very much a show for adults um, because the fantasy is one that is most legible to adults. Like... The, the, the Luke Skywalker fantasy where he goes from, you know, whiny, aggrieved adolescent to the most important figure in the universe. That is the kind of thing that is traditionally targeted at kids. Right. It's the it's the special the special youth chosen one arc. Whereas the character of the Mandalorian, as played by Pedro Pascal, I mean, he's probably at least in his mid to late 30s, maybe 40. Uh, and the people people he's dealing with are gener- are generally Adults. I mean, Carl Weathers is in his seventies. Uh, baby Yoda is a baby, but uh, but he's fifty. He's yeah, he's a fifty-year-old baby, um, and he's the cub, right? And you know, I mean, I think that just like this is, and again, the the, the fantasy of being the competent operator is most legible to people who work, right? If you've worked for a living, 
the fantasy of being somehow unalienated from your labor, of being highly skilled and autonomous because of it. Um, these are fantasies that make sense to people who have bills, right? Uh, uh, I what? don't know, man. Because like when I was when I was like, if you had an older brother, you had that fantasy. Like the idea of be, be uh, children are hyper aware of how helpless they are. It's it's why it's that why they want to go off and do things by themselves. I think I think the the Mandalorian lone gunman hyper competent dude is is a uh, is something that's attractive to people at any age because we we all feel uh, we all feel powerless. No, I mean yeah, there's a lot that 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 fine that makes sense. I'm just saying that like the the chosen one arc that we make fun of a lot. Um, also with a character that's very young that I, I think is just, it, it links up much more easily with, uh, with how children operate. I mean, I'm again, I'm not a child psychologist, so far, I mean, I could be wrong, but I also think that like, there's something that you, that you were getting at too, about, uh, the characters in this show are depicted with the exception of baby Yoda. They are all mostly operating in gray areas. It's a very grayscale show, right? Unlike an Obi-Wan Kenobi type, no one is rushing on screen to be like, I am the good guy and I am a holy man. And like, you know, because um, Mandalorian has to be pulled into goodness. We discussed this with Witcher, right? It's the most basic thing about these shows. They have to be pulled away from their amorality and their sort of fierce independence to the point of uh, of not caring. And they have to be dragged into caring about the fate of others and the fate of the universe uh, or the continent or whatever. And, you know, I mean, that that's probably where it's least least geared at children. I think then then we could get into flip things around and say, like, you know, there's a strong case to be made that the vast majority of mass market media uh, of all kinds now is storytelling at the level of children targeted at adults. Um, and that Star Wars, of course, is at the vanguard of that. But I do think that that the, the way that this show uh, and shows like it operate in gray areas is probably the most adult thing about them, in my opinion. Hmm. It's an interesting point. Uh, let's see. Uh, when you were talking about this earlier, uh, you mentioned that Firefly is the perfect TV show. Do you want to expand on that a little bit in relationship to uh, Mandalorian? Yeah, I think I touched on Firefly with Witcher. Um, yeah. You know, and I think that like the best way to do this would be to for us to actually go back to Firefly, which we will do at some point. I guarantee you um, that's going to happen. Also, did you see that they're thinking about uh, rebooting Firefly? Oh, mixed feelings, man. I mean, very mixed feelings. But like, I think the good news is it's actually it's kind of a hard thing to screw up because it's not like like Firefly has this mystique attached to it because it came out at the height of like when Joss Whedon was, <laughs> believe it or not, when Joss Whedon was sort of a cult, uh, had a cult of fandom around him and mm-hmm. was considered this insurgent rebel against Hollywood orthodoxy. Oh, I remember it well. You remember <laughs> it. You were there, man. You were on the front lines. and With uh, a t-shirt on, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and okay, so that was the time period. That was the setting. And then, you know, oh, he gets a network TV show um, and everybody's excited and it comes out and people are digging it. And then it gets canceled. Uh, and then, of course, the mystique builds over the next decade and a half of people trying to, like, raise money to revive the show. And Nathan Fillion is telling them, stop doing that. And, like, all of the things that came later. And then, of course, there was a movie, Serenity. Um, 
etc. and so on. And like when I say hard to screw up, I think the thing that that gets lost in all that mystique is the show is great fun. It's not like it's impossible to replicate in the way that like trying to do the Sopranos without uh, David Chase would be hard. Would it be impossible to do right? Like it's not it's not like uh, a Godfather movie without Francis Ford Coppola. It's not like a Wes Anderson movie without Wes Anderson. Like we're talking about a different level of creative project here. We're talking about something that is immensely hammy. In a way that is like when I say the word hammy, I think I think more of the kind of like reflexive. Uh, <laughs> um, how to say this? Uh, the, the, the sort of the play, the bod- bodily playful humor of that you see in like Witcher. Um, and, you know, it, that, that is sort of. That Mandalorian takes itself a little more seriously and the tone is just a lot more subdued and tamped down and, and not verbal because the Mandalorian's not as verbal. But anyway, sure. Fire, Firefly is very hammy in the same way that Witcher is. And it was, again, an episodic show where they floated around and it felt like every week Joss was cooking up, you know, some new complication that would take them to, to a slightly different setting and, and was then he was weaving in the larger lore and then the larger stakes were about to come to the fore when the season ended and all of that. Um, but again, I just don't think it's like, I think you could like pretty easily recapture a lot of that magic. Um, it would be contingent on having the, the actors back and stuff. Uh, That's what I was wondering about. Are you going to replace the actors? I mean, if you replace the actors, if you don't have Nathan Billion and stuff, like it's, it's just a different show. Um, yeah. And it could still be good, but like it's it's not it's not Firefly. But I mean, I, I go on that I went on that long spiel just to, just to point out that like the beauty of Firefly um, is the beauty of Mandalorian and Witcher, which is that they're, they're it, it's, these are shows that are much more in control of their ambitions and they are not prestige TV in the sense that I think is conventionally meant. Which I think on a Witcher episode I discussed that at length, but briefly to me, prestige TV is defined by wanting to be placed in the same level as the very best novels and films and the best of narrative narrative art generally. And I think that, that that Mandalorian and Witcher and Firefly do not have that ambition. They are something else. They're a different kind. Uh, they're, they're, they're also overtly fantasies, right? These are, I think that like the sort of self-conscious targeting of the elements that are fantasy. And like we, as the audience are participating in what the fantasy is, right? Like we know, we know that the distance between us and Geralt of Rivia or the Mandalorian in a way that we don't necessarily know. Um, the distance between us and Don Draper is a lot more subtle. The distance between us and Walter White. These are these are intentionally collapsed distances that, that inaugurate us into what they're doing in a different way, partly by a more realistic proximity to what's happening. Um, and again, I'm rambling again, but I think that like it, the, the idea of being episodic, of having something that, that wears its fantasy elements on its sleeve, that maybe, as I'm saying, hammy, um, that it is just willing to play around a lot in the sandbox, relatively low stakes that will do things like take cues from video games to keep us to, to give us sort of this uh, ghostly aura of interactivity. These are all of the things that I think the. Uh, the TV shows that I most sort of effort, effortlessly enjoy do Mandalorian, which would do them. I think that, that you see a proto version of them in Firefly. Does that kind of answer your question, Pete? Yeah. Yeah. It makes me visualize a subset of TV called genre TV though. What do you mean? 
Well, I mean, it seems like the things the things that you find attractive in this particular style of TV is exactly, the, or at least very similar to the things you find attractive in genre fiction, and I just think that's interesting. I'm going to need you to expand that for me, because I actually don't see the parallels between that and what I like in genre fiction, but hit me with it. Well, uh, genre fiction and... Uh, they they both they tend to be workmanlike. Uh, they 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 tend to be uh, more focused on plot and character development and a lot of things that aren't as interesting in the towers. Uh, they uh, they are not uh, they're not high church. They're low church. <laughs> oh, I mean. I, I just, do you- do you just mean, like, in general terms, why people are drawn to genre fiction? I thought you had, you had a theory about what I liked in genre fiction. Oh, I, I wasn't necessarily drilling that deep. I was just saying that the the relationship between genre fiction and the the um, the the TV shows we're talking about just seems pretty clear. Yeah. I mean, we're also talking about the three shows that I was mentioning there are, uh, you know, either very clearly fan, either one is clearly fantasy and the other two are clearly sci-fi and there's no ambiguity there. And of course they're participating in those well understood, um, genres across storytelling media. And I think like that, that kind of is a nice way to put it is that I think that TV at its best kind of positions itself parallel to genre fiction rather than trying to, uh, you know, compete with Moby Dick essentially like that's that's kind of where I come down on it and I think that like on this show we talk a lot about the utility of sort of understanding what your project is something that I that sounds simple right like people conceive of a novel project for instance and they think sort of automatically that they apprehend what it is because it's like well it's my idea and I'm here to say that at least in my experience I spend so much of my time as a writer kind of like re re redefining for myself um what the core of the product is and like locating it in genre space and trying to like sort of tighten down the the exact different parameters of it um trying to sort of hone down to its core identity and then like so much else has to grow out of that but it's also it's a constant like i said a re re redefining process it's like it's always bursting out of whatever chrysalis I create for it and becoming a different kind of butterfly that then goes into a different cocoon. And it's like, da, da, da. that's my process. Point about these shows being like understanding what you are and being anchored very clearly in that is such a virtue. And I think that Mandalorian, um, I mean, Mandalorian understands this. The word I'd use Mandalorian is ruthless. It is ruthlessly structured, ruthlessly pared down. And it is such a careful student of, um, you know, of Japanese samurai movies, of TV shows from the 50s and 60s about cowboys, of other westerns. And like I think that the sort of the effort here to like <laughs> uh the steely-eyed discipline of the show which mirrors that of its uh you know, barely verbal character in his steel helmet. Um it's a sight to behold and I I think that there's a danger here of being like all TV should be like this because then you just have Disney creating like 12, like if you had like, if Disney were doing this with like 12 more shows that were all sort of like bloodless and ruthless reproductions of things that had worked on TV 60 years ago, I would be like, ah, that's not exactly what I wanted. But I think in this specific case, it works really nicely. Well, I mean, I, I think that's a good thing to, to say about uh, writing 
and uh, television in general is that as soon as somebody figures out a formula and start using it, it becomes the problem. It's it's precisely what we were talking about when we were going through uh, talking about Joss Whedon and J.J. Abrams. It's like that sort of storytelling is fine until it owns the universe. Yeah, there's sort of an uh, an irony there or a dialectic, if you will, uh, of how artistic conventions operate, right? Because the biggest thing, the greatest thing that you can achieve in some ways as an artist in any given field is you, your work is so influential. Um, you develop an aesthetic that is specific and then it, it becomes a convention. It becomes conventional. It starts out as challenging conventions and that's why it is intriguing. And then it, if it succeeds enough, it becomes the convention, right? It's the, it's the life cycle of uh, you become what you hate, Luke, you know? <laughs> and yeah, I mean, that's um, maybe I'm just participating in post, 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 post modernity here and like letting myself be dazzled by the recapitulation of uh, longstanding sort of modes of storytelling from post-war Japanese samurai movies and, you know, post-war American Westerns. And to a great extent, I am doing that. I'm definitely letting myself be taken in by something that is carefully studied uh, its source material to the point of sort of just uh, stealing the so- stealing the source code, as it were. Well, good. Yeah. I mean, like, I, we could argue about whether it's art, but it's certainly craft, and I'm enjoying it. You know me. I, I, I believe in a capacious definition of art because art has to be allowed to be bad. Lots of, there's lots of bad art that still qualifies as art. It's definitely art. Uh, is Mandalorian... The point, though, my point about Mandalorian is it's not prestige TV. Therefore, it's not aspiring to be, quote unquote, high art or whatever uh, more elevated category you want to have. And that's among its many virtues. Um, it, uh, you know, I, I there's like there's so many cool things about the show. Like, I I love the the ending credits. They have like these really cool uh, like oil paintings that, that they commissioned of the scenes. That's pretty that's really tight. Don't you think? Yeah. Yeah. No, that I. It, there there are so many little details of this show that 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 I'm enjoying. It's definitely one like um, I, I, I watched the whole show while my wife was out of town and she's back now and we've watched a couple of episodes and it it holds up watching it again. Like I'm not telling everybody to go back and watch the damn thing all over again, but I'm saying that if you're in a situation where you do, it, it's definitely a show that that rewards that behavior. Which surprised me. Yeah, I'm that like the little t- like this is a this is a sort of like clean and I think uh, to draw a contrast from this in The Witcher, like this is sort of a clean and controlled show, whereas The Witcher is sort of sprawling and chaotic um, at, at every level. The actual storytelling, the way that they're shot, uh, set design, like this this is like I, I think one of the one of the really satisfying things about Mandalorian is that there's a precision to it that sort of mirrors the precision lines of his armor. It's like that the, the precision cut armor with the, you know, sort of like barely verbal character beneath it is such a great synecdoche for the entire uh, narrative. And it's, it's a blast. I really, I, I said this on Twitter, but I think it was a missed opportunity though to not have anyone say to Carl Weathers, Gil got you pushing too many pencils. <laughs> 
<laughs> but, you know, I'll forget them for that. He's still alive. So uh, we've got more opportunities for that to happen with Carl Weathers. <laughs> I I actually had a moment with that when I rewatched the last episode where they were getting on the lava boat. And he was like, you know, well, if, if we all get on the lava boat, I, I so wanted him to say, you've got yourself a good stew. I mean, that would have been amazing. <laughs> no, you, Pete, you did it wrong. Come on, man. It's baby. You've got a stew going. That's the quote. <laughs> okay. Come on, man. Um, hey, like <laughs> once she gets past 45, you can fuck up quotes. It's expected. <laughs> OK, that's I guess that's our official rule now. So I'm going to ask you, um, let's do some fun stuff. Uh, what's your... I'm going to ask you if your favorite character or which character you think you are. I'll just ask you, what's your favorite character in Mandalorian? Okay. Um, well, uh, I'll answer with two because that's that's how I am. Like, I, I definitely uh, like the uh, the nurse droid and their redemption art. I, arc. I was charmed by that, especially when... I, I, it occurred to me that the, the droid made no choices at all. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? I was, I was just sort of enamored of the idea of him, him going from this murderous psycho to, to this baby protector and, you know, all the sacrifices made. And then I'm like, hey, wait a minute, programmed, there's no moral choice here. <laughs> Interesting choice, Pete. Uh, yeah, I liked it. I also like the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern Stormtroopers. I thought that was very charming, too. Yeah, those were fun characters. You always have the most interesting picks. I did ask you what your favorite character is in stories more often, because you always pick things that I would not have expected. You don't just say, my favorite character is the Witcher. Uh, yeah. <laughs> which, I mean, you can say that. That'd be fine. Sure. Um, you know, I have to say, I really appreciate it. For me, I really appreciated uh, Gina Carano as Cara Dune. Which is a great like old school Star Wars name. <laughs> um, that's like a um, uh, Timothy Zahn style name. Uh, she was she was the the rebel with the with the uh, auto gun, right? Yeah, she's the yeah. former uh, rebel shock trooper from Alderaan. That's a nice touch. She's from the planet that got blown up. Yep. Um, and she's just a, keep yeah. Keep talking. I'm gonna grab my beer from across the room. Okay. Yeah, she's, uh, you know, um, Cara Dune, what can be said about her? Not a ton of character development other than that she's a, you know, a classic badass chick right down to the sleeveless shirt and the boots. Like, the, the full-on aesthetic is there. And uh, she she and Man- Mando, his name's like Dinjar, but I'm going to keep calling him Mando, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, have like a classic comic book, uh, you know, greeting where they fight. The first thing they do is fight on this out remote planet that they arrive at, and they become friends. And again, talk about like basic characters. Like, there's something just great about there's something that's very loyal to like the Kurosawa like samurai movies of the dialogue, where he like pitches her on joining him when he goes back to um, you know to grief Karja uh, Carl Weathers and to confront the Imperials who had him like had him hunt down baby Yoda. He's going to go back to confront them and he pitches her on it. And she's like, absolutely not. No way. And then he's like, she's like, no, she's like, no way. I'm not going to help you fight some local warlord. And then he says, they're not local warlords. They're Imperials. And then she just like takes a sip of her drink. And she's like, I'm in. That's like very, <laughs> that draws on a lot of different things. I think it reminds me of sort of the, the, the rise stoicism of Kurosawa movies or of, uh, the best Westerns. Um, also, Gina Carano is a uh, actual like UFC fighter or MMA fighter. Um, 
So, you know, she's an actual badass. Uh, not, not just, not just playing one on TV. Um, this is the way. Yeah, this is, <laughs> this is the way. <laughs> also shout out to Carl Weathers as Grish Karja. Uh, is it Karga or Karja? I can never remember. Um, Anyway, he's the the sort of the guild head, and we're told he's this disgraced magistrate. Does a great job as sort of like a hammy bullshit artist, old guy who's pretending he cares about Mando, doesn't really, and then you know makes the right choices in the end. No spoiler alert there, but um, yeah, yeah no, we haven't done any praise for Baby Yoda on this show. Um, <laughs> what do we what do we think about Baby Yoda, Pete? Um, I think. Uh, He's potentially too useful to just call him a MacGuffin. Like in some in some ways, like he's just sort of the the placeholder that the story orbits around. But it's very clear that he's going to become more and occasionally he exhibits powers and stuff. So I'm I'm interested in him. I think they did a good job of catching my interest. But I also um He's he's a he's a small cute baby with magic powers that can ultimately get you out of everything, and I think that is potential storyline poison. Yeah, so I think that Baby Yoda is kind of the key to where the show goes next. Um, because spoiler alert, um, you know, uh, Mando is being told by his like priestess slash smithy of the Mandalorian sect that uh, he he should go reunite. Baby Yoda with its people. So, I mean, presumably we're on our way to Yoda planet um, at some point. And I, you know, I mean, if, if this show just dives right into like the bigger stakes of the classic Sith Jedi war and everything else, like to me, it's, it's kind of a missed opportunity because I would like for them to go. It would be cool if they went in a completely different direction within the Star Wars universe. They can't seem to bring themselves to do that. Which is why we've already had Yoda as a force, baby Yoda as a force user in this show. I would love it if Mando were like more resistant to doing that exact thing, and there was more wandering around in a more circuitous, kind of unconventional route to this sort of like the Skywalker arc of the baby Yoda. But we're probably not going to get that, so you know, enjoy it while it lasts. Well, I guess. <laughs> what I love is that Mando's reaction to the Jedi is like, "What the hell are they?" I mean, it's a reaction that speaks to a much larger Star Wars world than we've previously seen. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I would say large. Like, yeah, everyone. Um, it seems like f- the use of the force in, in for these characters is mostly just a rumor. Um, like Mando is surprised by it. Lots of characters are surprised by it when Baby Yoda uses the force. And they sort of have to piece together like, oh, I've heard legends about this, which is kind of refreshing compared to most Star Wars where it's just like the force Jedi, you know, right at the front. Oh, of the yeah. Ring. Like. <laughs> In 1978, like Luke is lighting his cigarettes with the force, you know? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, Yeah. I mean, look, Mandalorian is a lot of fun. I don't I I feel like I've said most of what I have to say about it. Um, I do think it's worth checking out. At least you can get your your free week or whatever from Disney Plus and watch it if you don't want to pay for Disney Plus. Um, Pete, do we have other, other thoughts we want to hit on here? Um, well, I think the other thing we should mention that doesn't necessarily relate to Mandalorian, but it relates to us, is that we are both uh, sinking into a fairly deep and complex video game. And we should probably call that out right now. Yeah, before we started uh, recording, Pete and I both confessed that we have simultaneously become addicted to Witcher 3. And we're both excited to get back to playing it, which we will do here in a couple minutes. I want to ask you, though, first, Pete, um, what platform are you playing on? Uh, PS4. 
Same. We're both going to turn on the PS4 right after this and play Witcher, which is not The Mandalorian, but based on the way we had it, we ran this episode, you might be you'd be forgiven if you confused Mandalorian and Witcher. But you know uh, what? Yeah. <laughs> we did sort of blend the Witch DeLorean. It's fine. The Witch DeLorean. <laughs> the Man Ditcher. Oh, that's a dirt. That's a- <laughs> Ah, this is like here we are. We're just we're just uh, <clears throat> appropriating copyrights left and right. Anyway, thanks everybody. <laughs> uh, thanks guys. Take care. <laughs>